0: Hello and welcome back, and conversely, goodbye forever to Demo Tapes, the music podcast that's been all about hitting rewind on the bands and scenes we love. I'm Rick Martin, and this, for the final time in this universe of naughties indie nostalgia, is my co host, Sarah Jane Kemp.
1: Hi, Rick. Hi, and uh, I'm really sad about this. Can someone please order me a WAMBULANCE stat? So, I mean, I guess first things first, Rick, we should explain why it's hello and goodbye straight off the bat, don't you think?
0: Yeah, I mean, we haven't put an episode out for kind of almost a year now, and I guess the listening millions have probably been guessing that demo tapes might be no more. So I should probably explain why we're here now, right? Yeah, so we have been snowed under by the deluge of correspondence asking where we are, you know, when we're coming back and what we've been doing for the last 10 months. Um, I suppose the truth is, and uh, I don't know how you feel about this, Sarah nostalgia has a shelf life and we think ours was probably about three years and just under 40 episodes but i don't know about you i've had an absolute ball producing this podcast so it kind of felt wrong to not kind of put a full stop on the end of, of end of demo tapes so just let it kind of slide off into the ether without without a final episode so we thought we'd come back explain why where we've been why we're going and then uh, yeah, have a bit of fun on a final episode
1: it's funny, isn't it? When you kind of look back, I remember us talking about the rose-tinted spectacles and how great it is to look look through those, and 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 kind of all that nostalgia goodness. And I can't believe we've done just under forty episodes. It feels like it feels a bit surreal to be here talking about that right now. But um, I, I, it's almost like some of them I can't really remember doing them. But I do completely agree. And you know, nostalgia does have a shelf life, and that particular era that we both met, and you know bonded over, I guess, um, has now been done a lot. Uh, you know, it's a bit bit overdone now, I think. Um, not to blow our own trumpet, but we started back in 2018 and I think we were the only podcast looking back on that indie scene of the noughties, and and all of a sudden, before we knew it, the market kind of became flooded with similar podcasts. And I think, you know, I take that as a bit of a compliment, but there were very similar guests on there, and I think, you know, that at that time the podcast world was exploding and Everyone seems to have a podcast these days,
0: right? Yeah, exactly. And I, I think you're right. And look, I'm not here to dig anyone out, but I do think there were some pale imitations of, of demo tapes that uh, that came after us. And we've argued about whether we'll name these. And I, I won't name any names because I won't stoop to that level. And look, this is supposed to be like a positive celebration of what we've done rather than kind of the negativity. I suppose what's also interesting, and I, mean, I know you've, you've seen this and we've debated this at length recently, is we struggled for those nearly 40 episodes to give this scene a name, the scene that we were talking about back in kind of the noughties guitar scene. Admittedly, the podcast wasn't supposed to just be about naughty's guitars. There was a bit of Britpop and the stuff we grew up with, but that was kind of the primary focus. And then it of two or three months ago now, this thing about Indie Sleaze came out. There's that kind of infamous uh, Instagram account. If you haven't seen it, I'm sure you have. If you haven't, we'll put a link in the, uh, the episode notes. That's I guess, um, you know, we were looking back with maybe Rose Tinted Spectacles. I'm not sure this this kind of now revival for Naughty's nostalgia through the, the lens of indie sleaze is entirely positive. I know you've got a slightly different take on that. Sleaze isn't the most... Like positive, it's not a word you associate with positivity, is it? I think, yeah,
1: I think you're just thinking too much into the word. I think it's, I think it's great. You know, it's. I I was kind of reading an article because there's articles about this everywhere at the moment, and uh, one of them on Radio X is talking about that it's the latest take on the indie rock style of the two thousands, the two thousand and tens. And according to Vogue, you know, a glamorous publication, Rick Vogue's talking about it. It's good, right? Um, They said it's a messy amalgam of nineties grunge and eighties opulence. Sounds great topped off with an almost pretentious take on retro style how i mean that's to me that sounds really cool and i'm really proud and and grateful that got to be a part of that and also what makes me laugh the most is that apparently it's now been adopted by gen z gen z is what age by the way do you know I don't know. Uh, I don't know I get lost in all this kind of 8, eight to 12, 12 or something I mean
0: <laughs> isn't it now like gen alpha and gen beta they're starting to talk about it's I mean like,
1: oh, I, I don't know I sound lose, lose track I know right I, I lose track well we are we are Rick we've got it we've got to admit that you know we're we've done a podcast on uh, nostalgia from 2000s that's us that's what old. we're officially over the hill and i know
0: that you've been reading up on how the media has been reacting i think the best description i read of indie sleaze was in was in vice um i'm just going to read it out because i can't really do it justice without just reading it out so it's 2008 you just woken up on a mattress on the floor of the Hoxton apartment you rent for 350 pounds a month i mean imagine that in london now You tie your hair back with an American Apparel scrunchie and check your BBMs. That'd be BlackBerry Messages. There's a party tonight in some tunnel in Shoreditch and Agnes Dean is DJing. Last time, Uffy, which I think is a reference to Skins. Showed up wearing a T-shirt that simply read "cocaine." See you there, you message before tossing your Blackberry, whatever that is, into a recent copy of Super Super Magazine. You don't know it yet, but you are living in peak indie sleaze. I know when I when I read that out to you early, you were quite enjoying that. That that that, oh,
1: that really just, had you in it, tears, didn't it? It did. I got goosebumps thinking about it. It was it. It encapsulated. Everything about that era for me. Offie, by the way, was an American French singer, and she was part of the Ed Banger crew. And she was part. She came onto the MySpace bus when I was doing that whole kind of MySpace touring of every single festival on the Rootmaster bus. Once, I actually had a really good night with the uh, good night with her. Actually, she was really fun. We were eating Salt and vinegar crisps on the top deck of the MySpace bus. Um, <laughs> just run randomly at like midnight and this is, very, this is
0: another reason why i think uh I, i'm no longer for this world of nostalgia because i've read uffy there and i thought that I meant effie from Skins. so i don't even <laughs> know my indie sleeves references that's how bloody old i have got that i can't even i can't i don't know my uffy from my effie anymore you know
1: <laughs> unbelievable unbelievable rick but yeah if you haven't seen that instagram profile we'll put the link in our episode notes um i think it you know you you don't think it's complimentary but i think it is
0: and i think the thing about this episode as well i mean we don't want to be all doom and gloom and bitter and you know indie sleaze has killed our podcast and all that sort of stuff but um we actually want to use this as a chance to i guess indulge ourselves a little bit with a little bit of nostalgia for our nostalgia and we'll be playing out a few of our favorite clips from kind of down those 40 episodes um a little bit later on
1: yeah and i'm i'm really excited i've been really looking forward to to kind of talking about these because you know like I said revisiting some of the interviews I'd I'd forgotten about I'd forgotten about what we talked about I'd forgotten about where I was and all of a sudden hearing it back just really kind of it all comes flooding back to me it's actually quite sad you know
0: yeah I, I kind of know what you mean there is there is you know I'm quite emotional about finishing this podcast as well as much as I'm, I may not always come across kind of that way because you know for me starting this podcast back in 2018 I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say sort of changed my life or or at the very least I think allowed me to close the book on a part of my life that maybe I didn't fully close the book on properly first time round. and I guess to explain that I probably made vague references uh, early it's certainly in the early episodes of the podcast that obviously I started as a music journalist at 16 on the enemy. did kind of 10 years on on the enemy. by the end of those 10 years as I think a lot of music journalists find I was kind of burnt out I didn't necessarily leave enemy in the the best way. uh, Well, you know, maybe wasn't on my own terms, maybe as euphemistically as I can put it, and I had a third child on the way, so it was kind of a quite a challenging time. And it was one of those things where I think after 10 years of working in the music industry, I'd reached the point where I didn't even care about music. You know, music was this thing I wrote about in kind of almost like a robotic way. It was was work, it was a job. And I think then I probably needed a break, but I'd always had that kind of itch I wanted to sort of scratch. I'd always felt I guess as as I started listening to music again and going to gigs again, came out of festival retirement at one point. I was like, I'm never going to a festival again after doing summers of five, six, seven, eight festivals a summer. I was like, that's it, I'm done. Maybe, you know, i got in a new relationship. I started going to festivals again. I started to enjoy music again. Um, And I guess starting the podcast allowed me to kind of revisit all of that a little bit older and wiser as well you know i finished Enemy at kind of 25 26 when you think you know everything and you actually know nothing and to I guess to revisit some of these bands and scenes a little bit older and wiser i've 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 kind of really enjoyed
1: and you've probably got more to talk about as well no that, that it's it's good it's interesting I remember us first talking about the the podcast you came to me with the idea I have to say um and it was it was it was really great because we realized like we'd talked about before that we were in the same place the same time we're pretty much the same age um and I, I can't believe we ended up where we did both together I still can't believe that but um I'm glad we did and I'm glad we've been able to do demo tapes but I think I'd agree as well you know unlike you I didn't end up working as a full-time music journalist but it's something that you know the reason I came to London was to start being you know I wanted to be a music journalist that was my dream um having kind of done some interviews around (laughs) some of the funny stories that you'll hear in other podcasts um interviews kind of around Nottingham and kind of blagged my way into doing a lot of interviews actually which I just found like the thrill of it the thrill of the music industry at that time was just for me the best feeling ever and I and and you sort I sort of lost it a bit and um like you say as well like going to festivals I went to so many festivals and I I also had that revelation of I'm never going to another festival again I haven't started doing festivals again and I'm not sure I will but um I've you know I'm starting to think about going back to some more gigs and things like that I feel like yeah this this podcast has just opened up kind of another kind of a whole world again in, into music and, and and discovering music which has just been so good because for me I've always said if, if the life without life without music is a life not worth living
0: I think the other thing to say there and you sort of touched on how the podcast got started is there was no guarantee this was even going to work right you know I had this revelation one morning of I've been listening to a lot of podcasts I'd done a little bit of broadcast. Uh, journalism training at uni but I never really used it I had this itch around wanting to talk about music again but i didn't want to write album reviews for online websites for 10 quid a throw um and there was no guarantee it was going to work and it was funny listening back to the pilot that we recorded that we put out the last episode it's in our kind of archive now if you want to, want to go and listen to that and it was amazing how as you say we were in the same similar places at similar times we didn't know each other But then it just kind of clicked in terms of the way that we're able to talk about music. Definitely not agree. On I would say (laughs) (laughs) ninety percent of stuff, but have that, I guess, that 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 shared that shared love of music, but also that shared I guess um, uh, impetus to want to talk about it as well and to share that kind of more broadly with other people.
1: Yeah I mean it's it's been good. I love the fact that you picked on the fact that we haven't always agreed. I think part of the part of the reason we get on so well I know this sounds like a really weird way of saying it but is that we do argue about things that we believe in and it always gets to a good point. And I actually quite enjoy that kind of combative discussion sometimes with you around music. I'm like, no, Reg, you're wrong. And you tell me I'm wrong. And I think it's good to have someone saying that because, you know, it's very, music is very subjective, isn't it? So, you know, no one, who's who's right or who's wrong. Oh, I'm going back into that whole kind of, can music be factually good mm, conversation mm. again, which was another good One of my favorite
0: episodes without any shadow of a doubt. So, I mean, I still argue that music can be <laughs> factually good and factually bad, and you will never change my, my view on that.
1: So, We've been talking about old episodes, so why don't we play out some classic clips and uh, and see where it takes us? The obvious place to start, I think, Rick, would be um, your your favourite uh, PR stunt, right?
0: Well, the the Arctic Monkeys interview, yeah. The, I mean, which did happen, which does appear on the first two episodes if you haven't heard it, and it was one of the turning points in my career. But after nearly forty episodes, I'm willing to admit no one can hear a bloody word that Alex or Matt is saying or you may be able to pick out the odd word here or there and yes when we released that episode we sort of knew that we knew it'd probably get picked up it was a PR stunt that got us into the enemy and Radio X and you know kind of across Twitter and Facebook for a few days but it built us an audience right I mean that's one of the first rules of like the music industry a good PR stunt gets you attention right
1: exactly no i think it was great i love the fact that you can admit it now um do you know what resonates for me off that that your very high pitched very northern sounding voice (laughs) which has completely Uh, completely changed since those days
0: that's the bit that made me laugh the most i think part of that was just the way that i had to warp the tape when i kind of converted it to digital just to make it vaguely listenable so it made me sound even (laughs) higher pitched and i was only about 12 at the time anyway so yeah we can't we can't play that out. But I thought, you know, maybe what we could do, and this is probably quite timely with the episode we put out last week, the 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 pilot around Blur versus Oasis, was why don't we go back to your interview with Dave Roundtree uh, from Blur. A great interview that kind of covered his whole career, not just Blur, but things he'd done afterwards. He's a lawyer, that sort of thing. So it was quite hard to pick out, like, a the best clip. But I think what we've done is gone back to kind of the the blur versus oasis days did you want to talk a little bit about the clip before we before we play it out
1: yeah sure i mean the whole interview was 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 great right we met um we met in a hotel in london and that sounds really dodgy but it isn't we were in a hotel lobby overlooking the river (laughs) thames it was lovely as you say there's kind of music in the background which was which was really funny like amateur podcaster hey right (laughs) um but, you know, I just, I, we we sat there and we spoke for a couple of hours. Like, it was a really long conversation. What Honestly, one of the most fascinating people I've ever met in my entire life. My, my favourite part of the interview was when he started talking about drummer knicker throwers. And we, um, like, uh, an, an invention for this, like, you know, like those dog balls that you throw. But mm, having, like, mm. throwing... Knickers at the drummer, and for some reason that just stuck in my head. I loved it, but anyway,
0: yeah, I I think the woke world has moved on actually. Maybe we can't talk about people throwing the knickers at drummers, that's why I picked this uh, this clip out. (laughs) So, yeah, let's let's play it out.
2: I mean, the most out there thing we did was take indie music, which at the time we started had its own chart, it was so unsuccessful, you know. had its own chart because otherwise nobody would ever have heard of these bands you know kind of chapter house and slow and all these bands that were you know selling a thousand records when when the people at the top main chart were selling a million records plus so uh we somehow and i'm still not entirely sure how i think just with the with the good songs that we were writing took that indie music and made it into a mainstream thing you know kind of changed the changed what people viewed as chant music yeah from, uh, when do you
1: think you did which song in particular did well, you well it was the Park album start. really yeah, yeah, yeah. that
2: uh, and the success of the Brits the spat with Oasis oh the, you've brought that up <laughs> yeah well that was all part of it
1: yeah PR was it all PR or was it was yeah. it re- how real was it I was actually going to bring it up because I, I thought you know it's been talked to talked about to death um, but I think yeah. it's probably be bad luck if it doesn't come up in an interview with you surely for for either me or you um, <laughs> but uh, yeah it's well,
2: hard to talk about the history of the band without talking about that yeah because yeah, that, yeah for both of our bands really and that that was it was a it was an interesting idea and we what we learned from it was fairly fairly soon after we we signed to our label which was Food Records that was the one with Dave Balfe and uh, Andy Ross who was a music journalist at the time they were the two people that ran it and they were they were always keen on um, coming up with the new new ideas new and interesting ways of doing things that had been done in slightly less interesting ways before so every photo session there was, was a concept somehow or other you know every interview they were the constantly nagging us to come up with interesting things to talk about, not, you know, because the, otherwise they to degenerate into, well, why did you choose that producer, what was it like working <laughs> in this studio that nobody wants to read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things that we'd always managed to get as column inches and was kind of fitted in with uh, our personalities, especially Damon's personality at the time, is we'd always picked on another band to sort of kick against, you know, and there's nothing there that the Press liked more in the nineties than one band slagging off another band. No, mm-hmm. so I, I think that's kind of we're all a bit polite to do that these days. But anyway, most of the bands we would, who we would uh, kick against, would kind of run off screaming, cower in the corner, and hide.
1: Not Oasis. But we came up. <laughs> we met
2: our match at Oasis, who we were just as interested in having a having a slanging match as we were. And actually, especially Noel was a lovely guy. You know, I'd, I'd met Liam, I I'd met him, I, I, my, I was married at the time, my wife worked at Creation Records, it was their record labels, so I okay. kind of vaguely knew them, yeah, yeah. and I had a bit of a laugh with Liam one night um, about it all, but... Uh,
1: at the time at it was going on, time, so at yeah. the time you were meant to be rivals... You, yeah, well, you we definitely
2: were... were rivals in the sense that um, I think uh, Damon and Alex really got under their skin because they were, right. they were uh, very forthcoming with their uh, <laughs> with their one-liners, and I think Oasis had never really met anybody who wouldn't, you know, just cower in the face of their sort of Mancunian
3: yeah, yeah, onslaught. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, so what I love about that clip, I think, as you mentioned, as we we kind of teed it up, was uh, hearing all the background music. I was almost keeping a tally of songs that I I, um, I recognized. And actually, I mean, that's not amateur hour for podcasting. You sometimes just have to get the interview where you can get it right. And if that's in a hotel lobby with the Blues Brothers, was the thing that I noticed <laughs> in the background. Then that's that's um, that's something you got to do. But I mean, look, I know you you are a you were and are a massive blur fan um so you know what was it like catching up with dave so many years after you'd first met because i know that you told me that one of the first times you met i mean i assumed it was like a festival or backstage at a gig but it was actually in like a really unusual place wasn't it
1: really weird setting i used to have a meet uh, a, a food blog um and i got invited to an event which was called the apartment so i was a microsoft ambassador for for a couple of years um through a PR agency that really also really strangely we're using now at work which is just things go around in weird ways in life don't they um and yeah so he was there talking um as a guest in this Microsoft department that they'd kind of rented out and Dave was there as an as a friend of the owner of the agency talking about kind of the future of music streaming and I think it was Deezer because I think their client was Deezer um, which I don't I don't think he's uh, around anymore I'm not really sure but anyway he was doing this talk and then afterwards kind of me him and a few other people kind of from the event was were, were stood around kind of chatting and just having a really good chat really and um afterwards we all kind of followed each other on Twitter and then yeah, we just sort of worked near each other and just kind of went for lunch a few times. Um, and it was just really quite surreal, you know, going for lunch with Dave Roundtree at Pizza Express on like a Tuesday afternoon <laughs> and then going back to the office and be like, what? What's going on? This is this is absolutely bizarre. And then, yeah, they kind of came to Australia when I was living there and played. It's when they kind of reformed. So, um, yeah, it was just really good timing for me to be able to kind of be around that at that time. And as I said, just really interesting guy.
0: Shall we move on to another clip? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, so next, um, one of my personal favourites, I guess, that I did was an interview with the Reverend John McClure. Um, And he's kind of, he played kind of a really key role in my music journalism career, kind of back in the Sheffield days. Obviously Arctic Monkeys emerged, and then I kind of got to know, and obviously we all know that the fallout with the Arctic Monkeys around the the, the FIFA game and all that sort of stuff. If you haven't heard that story, that is on the Arctic Monkeys episode. I do talk through that rather than them talking about it, so you can hear it. And uh, yeah, I kind of got to know their mate, uh, John McClure, the Reverend, uh, and he always made for kind of great copy back in the day. So when we started the podcast, I was like, that's definitely someone we, we want to get on. And he kind of didn't, he didn't disappoint. And he was, you know, he's quite honest that he said he talked to me about things he'd never spoken about in an interview before. So um, yeah, probably best to let him speak for himself. So let's, let's play that out now.
4: I've upset so many people in industry Rick, I've blacklisted from certain radio like literally not allowed to be on certain radio stations mm. and certain colleagues of yours from the past like I wouldn't even say dislike me like viscerally hate me um, and it's, the, the great shame of that is if I could sit with these people and talk to them in a room, I'm sure they'd think I were alright and I'd think they were alright we'd get on but because of the nature of the music industry, everything's reduced to like Snappy sound bites and little Twitter stories and whatever. People have got a lot of people outside of the music, industry, like outside of musicians, the the journalists and the, the label bosses and stuff. They think I'm some horrible bastard, and it, it does upset me that because I think I wish I could make them people understand that I'm not this like you know awkward tosser who they think I am. Do you know what I mean? The thing I said about the enemy not being scared to put black faces on the front cover were, were completely valid and true, and and years later people have come to me and went you know what you, you opened you, by saying that you opened the door to lots of black artists being able to be on the end being the enemy and for the enemy to, to move away from that guitar thing but of course nobody knows this and I'm the one that served the sentence by getting trashed for, for, for however long and it's you know what I mean it's hard mate because I've had to rebuild my career back up from these things do you understand what I mean so I, I got threatened with legal action I got canned, it genuinely ruined my career and my life for about four years. You know what I mean? And like, my second album is dead good. It's dead good, Rick. And it, you know, and it, listen, the review of it, I think they give it zero out of ten. Mm. And as, a, I, as, a, as a revenge attack. You know what I mean? Well, it's not a zero out of ten. It might not be a ten out of ten, but it's like. And I'd, 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 I'm going to give myself a bit of credit here, but had I been like less determined, whatever, or maybe it's less talented, or whatever, that would have finished us, it nearly did finish us, we went down to playing 300 in Manchester, only just being able to sell, lead me like in Sheffield, yeah, like, we're so, we can do like, four or five, you know, we're playing two and a half thousand in Manchester next week, it's, Mm. we've managed to build it back up, out of sheer perseverance, and I have to say, I've got a new, I've had a new manager ever since second out, and who's helped me, build my career back up there, but like, for the for the heinous crime of telling the truth, it nearly ruined me. But it, you know what I'm saying. Never ever ever told this story to anyone.
1: Yeah, and I, I, that was a really good interview to kind of listen to, Rick. And it was really interesting to hear him getting so riled up about it, and then, and you can really hear the passion, um, you know, in his in his voice. And actually, like the sadness. Uh, when he was talking about how his life was ruined for four years. I mean, that is a lot. But anyway, another band from that era that were always good for a quote with a twang. And uh, I went to interview singer Phil Etheridge back in 2019. Uh, I went to, I was kind of backstage, uh, uh, I think it was the O2, one of the O2 venues in um angel i think it was which again loads of clips to choose from here but we've gone for the one where he explains a slightly unusual reason they got dropped from their label you know how did it feel then when you were built up and up and up and, you know your debut album went top three you achieved gold sales then all of a sudden you know, the num you'd a second album and you broke top twenty and you're all all of a sudden having these conversations with people that were slightly more negative and did you think that you'd kinda of lost it all after that second album? No,
5: no, no, because if you'd have told me before we were signed that you're gonna have a top twenty record, I'd have I'd have jumped at that. You know, back at back in the day, bands that you know, I used to like you just scrape into the top forty, you know, and so to get a top but we we were dropped before the record had come out, you know, really. You know, to a degree. But on the day of... on the, Yeah, well, on the day of mastering it, we got really drunk, like, celebrating, and our bass player hit our label boss in the face with, like, a gammon steak off his plate, just fucking around. And it was like, we were dropped there and then. So we'd literally just mastered it. And I remember we sat down in this pub after... We'd been in... Um, with Metropolis with John Davies uh, you know and it should be a time of celebration but they, they brought the drinks out and John like literally just poured his pint over his dinner like and I was thinking what the fuck is that all about and then next thing you know this gammon steak covered in beer he's like on our label bus like face basically and he, he was like we were, we were dropped there and then so so he, so when I say like every time things are going well it was like you know and the next day that phone call the next day after the manager was like you're fucked you know you like, you dropped and it was like it should have been a time of like celebration because we'd made this record that we were really happy with Jewelry Quarter and uh, it was you know it was tinged every, that was that was regular that was every morning you know you do these festivals and it was like beautiful like you know crowd going nuts and And then, you know, you'd stay around too long and you'd piss someone off and it would be... Because the truth of it is, when it actually happens, they shit it. Do you know? When you get this group of lads that, like, you know, and and that whole laddie thing really annoys me. But, you know, you get this... When you fill them with drink and whatever, things are happening, you know, and it's... And when it does actually happen, your managers are like, "Oh, fucking hell!" Do you know what I mean? And then, they've
1: got. I mean, it must be a really hard job for a manager to to you know manage <laughs> manage. The thing people is, them stories situation. they live
5: off the next for the next few months. You yeah. know when they're telling everyone how crazy you are and they call cool, you know how wicked it is, and, and our managers were cool, man. They managed editors, at, you know as well. But I think with editors, they had this ban that. Were, played the game properly you know and with us they had a band that was fucking just
1: they were definitely more squeaky clean just right just <laughs> a little
5: bit out of
0: control Yeah I mean that's probably the most ridiculous way I think I've ever heard of a band explaining why they got dropped with their label a slice of gammon hitting their manager on on the head uh, and you know like you say there were loads of clips we could have chosen but uh, I guess with my journalist hat on you you go for the most salacious and uh, and ridiculous the most bizarre. Guess, exactly and I think I think one of the things we didn't include there that I know we're going to cover in kind of one of the next clips you know is around mental health um and you know he you I think by that point maybe in where we were with demo tapes it it, it almost you know, the theme was Naughty's guitar music, but I do think there was kind of a mental health angle starting to come in with some of these interviews, not in like a forced, contrived way, but I think it was naturally coming up with, um, I guess when you speak to people about a career, you know, particularly bands who maybe rose and then fall and then rose again, you know, that's naturally going to be tied in with with mental health. You did have a bit of a chat with with Phil about that as well, didn't you?
1: It's something that I, you know, we talk about our differences in interview styles, right? So, one of the things I think I'm really interested in is to kind of understand why people why people tick, why people do what they do, why people feel how they feel. You know, I'm quite quite, quite emotive like that. Um, all the I feels was, and all that, yeah. Well, it's just, for me. It's interesting to kind of understand, you know, the why and, and and how people, you know, why what how people feel basically, and and how how things make them feel. And um, I think it does make for an interesting interview as well when you, t- you kind of get into this get into the skin of someone rather than just talking about all the kind of facts and figures and things like that and i know some of the themes came up when you spoke to tom clark from the enemy didn't they
0: yeah so I guess this is this is another clip we wanted to play out and uh, you know re- I guess listeners should be getting a sense that we haven't just thrown these clips together in any old order so there is there are links here so obviously Tom Clark from the enemy being a midlander but also you know as you said there um you know these themes of of kind of mental health came up in the chat with with Tom and it maybe wasn't the the sort of interview that i was i was expecting so you know i did for this one you know a lot of the interviews we did we did on zoom or um backstage at gigs he actually invited me to his house in the midlands i mean we we sort of semi knew each other back in the day i did one of my big kind of enemy cover interviews with him back in the day we used to run each other into each other at festivals but i wouldn't say we knew each other sort of personally but there was some level of relationship there and i thought we'd just be kind of catching up on the good old days you know the festivals the gigs um you know the backstage nonsense and what it actually turned into was a much more kind of in-depth chat about the kind of rise and and fall of that band and the kind of effect that it had on his mental health. I could have taken any number of clips from this but I think this this for me is probably the most searing kind of bit of sort of detail from that chat so probably easier again for Tom to talk about in his own words so here he is. It was also around this time, uh, I think you were quite open about uh, your mental health. Uh, You know, we talked about some of the jabs that were made early in your career, and that you appeared to have that kind of thick skin and roll with the punches, but then you were quite... And I I was thinking about this, actually, in the context of kind of what's more broadly going on in in the world of kind of mental health at the moment. When you Live and Die in These Towns came out, I mean, it was a completely taboo subject. But still quite a, a brave thing to do I think for a musician to come out and do that kind of openly was it was it a tough thing was it a tough decision to go public because you did go very public on Twitter with kind of an open letter laying it all out for people how difficult was that to to kind of be open about
3: so by so the time when I started being open about that we're we're now onto making the fourth album which I suspected at the time when we were making it would be our last um and to be honest with you I, I wasn't really dealing with the press so I, I I was still slightly doing as I was was told and if there were big enough interviews I'd go and do them but I really had developed a dislike for the media in general at that point not just the music media just the the media in general the the standards of journalism were so low by this point I I kind of didn't have much time for it but Time Out magazine I can't remember what it is they said now but they said something horrible about my appearance which is, I mean that's that's always been the go-to for journalists because the thing is, is you can't knock away from here because it's a fucking belting song. Uh, whether you like it or not, everyone in a band can go, oh, f- "fucking shit song," but you still wish you wrote it because you'd have a bigger house. And mm. it, it's it, it's one of those where the, the the way that they would attack you is is just the lowest common denominator. It's just school bullies. It's just oh, you look different, and it's when you've endured that through school and then you've got into the adult world because I I always say to you know you see young kids being bothered and I say look it's just school and kids are really mean you get into the adult world it matters less because you you don't encounter as many petty minded sort of mean people but you kind of do so you know I've got out of school and got through you know, oh, you're you're really small. You've got a weird, whatever, and and then had this success where it's like, oh, I'm being valued for my creative ability, and no one really cares. But then there was always this sort of subcurrent of, oh, but you you look different, or or there's always a dig at something that I couldn't control that was just genetics or you know whatever it was. So I wasn't dealing with the media at all, and then I saw this Time Out piece, and you sort of expect it from anime, but you don't expect it of Time Out London. And they called me a hobbit or something. And it's just, I was just triggered, basically. I was just like... Because that's... That, in modern parlance, yeah. That word has, has popped up so often throughout the 10 years of being in the music industry. Like, I'm not a fucking hobbit. Like, I've not watched Lord of the Rings because of that word and how often that's cropped up in in media about me. Because mm, I've got no yeah. interest in watching anything with the word hobbit in there Because I cringe when I hear it. Because it's only ever been used as mm. an insult to me. So... But that popped up, and I thought, you know what? Your time out, London. I bet I could get someone sacked because you're supposed to be better than that. There, you, you can't get people sacked at Enemy for that. You know, if you if Enemy called you a hobbit and you wrote a letter of complaint to them, the whole office would probably just sit around laughing and publish a letter of complaint. Mm, but to be fair, yeah, yeah, that's what I'd do if I was <laughs> the editor at Enemy because what brilliant material. But with time out, London, I thought, no, you're supposed to be really professional, grown up journalists. I'm going fucking have you and I thought I'm not going to give an interview because I don't want anyone else to have an angle on this this is my angle and this is you're unprofessional and this is lazy journalism and it's bullying um, I would have done that with a, with a no, without the context of me having any mental health issues I would have still done that and held them to account but it probably wouldn't have had the gravitas that it had with the, the two added things of my honesty of holding up my hands and saying I've done this before I've said Faris has got shit hair from the horrors he can't help what his hair's like, and it's not actually that shit. Uh, but I've been guilty of it. But I, that's
0: different. That, that For me, that's a very different sort of comment, where he deliberately has a bird's nest kind of haircut yeah. than something that is but it, it's, targeting something like the height, for example, that no one can help.
3: I still wasn't proud of it, and I, I thought, I'll, I'll leave myself open to criticism where I'll, I'll devalue the, the the gravitas of this if I don't point out that I've been guilty of similar things you know, that I've I've thrown stones as well, but that at some point I grew up and became aware that you don't do that and I regretted doing it and I stopped doing it. If you're writing for Time Out London, grow the fuck up. Because if I've managed to do it with my life of drinking whiskey on the road, being in a fucking rock and roll band, then you should definitely have learned to do it while you're writing for Time Out London. Um, And so, yeah, I, I put that piece out there and I was really honest and I said, look, I've done this, but... You, you never know who's on the end of it. And um, you don't know what their particular personal issues are. You could fucking kill someone.
1: Yeah, I mean, honestly, when I was listening to that, I found it so, so, so sad that this poor guy has been called this name The Hobbit. And, ima- you know, that is just pure bullying. And and you know, it really got me riled up when I was hearing him talking because, again, this is something that you know, someone, some idiot somewhere at Time Out London was just think, you know thinking it was a bit of a joke and that he'd probably get a laugh and you know probably did get a laugh from a few people who are who are mean. Um, but you're playing with you're playing with people's lives and you you really don't know how that's going to affect them and and in some cases it can be really negative and 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 lead to really bad consequences. Um, And I just don't think, you know, this, this, this fortunately wouldn't wash today, I don't think. I don't think I don't think media outlets can really get away with doing what they did and what they talked about back in those days. And I'm really glad, glad about it. But poor guy. And and I know you had a really good chat with him and he just sounds like the the, the sweetest, most lovely and very, very talented guy. And, And he did come back onto our show and talk about his debut album the following year. And then, not long after, you know, he was talking about it with you. He reformed the enemy for some reunion gigs. So, you know, I'm sure if demitates was carrying on, we'd be having him on for a third time. But you know, alas, that can only uh, ever happen in an alternate universe, can't it? Yeah, I know,
0: I know. Yeah, and like you say, yeah, it was. I almost feel like from when he first came on to where to where he is now. You know the. He hadn't even released his debut solo album by then. He now has put a solo album out, and I, I wonder if it was his enemy bandmates listening to those interviews on demo tapes that maybe uh, convinced them that it was time to get back together. But yeah, I, I think we can put a. I'm happy to put a link in the description to uh, the tour dates that they're playing later later this year, and I'll, I'll definitely be be trying to get down to one of those shows. Um, and yeah, just just a great guy. A, a friend. I would almost call him a friend of the show. I hate I hate bollocks when people say stuff like that, but fuck it. Tom Clark is a friend uh, <laughs> a friend of uh, Demo Tapes. And speaking of friends of the show, I felt like we couldn't do kind of a best of clips episode uh, without having basically, I'd say like Queen Bee of our Demo Tapes guests, Laura Jean Marsh, uh, who is the director and star of the British indie film Giddy Stratospheres. And I remember when we first heard about this film coming out, I think we were in like our second series or something. And it was like, we couldn't believe that someone was putting out a film that was basically sound like the film version <laughs> of demo tape for podcast so we had to get her on to mirroring
1: what we're doing and what a good egg like she was but hands down the most kind of helpful and engaging person that we we worked with and chatted to throughout the whole of the podcast for the last three years um sadly we couldn't get to you know she i think she had held a birthday party at the end of last year that we were going to try and get down to but covid put a stop to that unfortunately um so we've never actually met her in real life but i really really want to so laura if you're listening let's get that drink drinking um, and thank you You know we just want to you know we're going to say thank you to to lots of people later but i do want do want to say again you know thank
0: you laura yeah she's got an amazing little black book of basically every single indie face from kind of uh kind of the, the 2000 particularly centered around she's the london scene Yeah, she's a connector. She's a
1: pure connector through and through. And it's really, you know, it's really obvious and it's really nice to see. And everyone seems to
0: love her as well. So as we said, she put out the film Giddy Stratospheres. If you haven't seen it, it's on all good uh, streaming platforms. But uh, so, yeah, here she is talking about the inspiration for that film.
6: I honestly think, you know, I can only speak from my experience, but I remember... I remember I, I just listened to Nirvana and like loads of grungy stuff and, like, 70s punk in school. And then I remember The Strokes coming out and everything changed. So I know that's not a very British answer, but I do believe that The Strokes changed everything. Um, they certainly did in my vortex. Uh, and I wonder whether when they kind of popped up, that kind of kicked a lot of people's brains into another gear and they started dressing differently and writing different kinds of music and it kind of took its own course in the UK um, and London obviously became, ex- all, all, I mean all music cities became exciting in a new way and it just sort of snowballed really. I wonder if it was The Strokes and I remember going to ugh, some really exciting Libertines shows when I first moved to London and just feeling like the energy in the air was exciting and I guess you know it just felt like something new was happening and it felt it wasn't just those guys I mean there were so many bands at that time that were really exciting like I don't know there were some bands that didn't make it quite as big but my I dated the singer in the rocks James for years um and they were always a super exciting band um and Art Brute and there were like loads of really exciting bands that were going on at that time and it just felt like whenever you were at those gigs you just felt like you were really lucky to be there um mm. something that is impossible it was impossible to put your finger on at the time but that's what I'm trying to trying to kind of create that energy and that excitement with, with what I'm making with this film
1: so the final clip we're playing is hands down the best anecdote I've ever heard in an interview probably like the best anecdote ever full stop just because of the 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 hilarity of the situation the comedy timing of this situation with with the people involved is brilliant
0: Yes, I wonder if listeners have guessed which one this is yet, but if you haven't, it's uh, it's Chris McClure. So if you don't know who Chris McClure is, he's the brother of the Reverend John McClure, who was on earlier, a bit of a running theme here. He's the guy on the front of the Arctic Monkeys album cover. He was kind of a musician in his own right, and we originally got him on the show actually because he was working on kind of a, a documentary around kind of alcoholism and addiction in the music industry, which again tied quite nicely with that mental health angle, and that's the reason you know we got him on for for a chat someone I kind of remembered from from back in the day not wouldn't say like a mate or anything like that but we we moved in those kind of same circles probably because I knew his brother uh, John McCaw a little bit um and you know all that stuff was really insightful but then I think it was kind of part way through the episode maybe somewhere towards the end I didn't even have to ask him a question for this he just went Rick, I've got the greatest anecdote. I've got a great anecdote from back then. Can I tell it to you? What I've subsequently realised, apparently he's quite famous in Sheffield circles for telling this story. This is like his, you know, last when the last daughters go at a pub, this is a story he tells all of his, uh, all of his mates. And I guess the only um, background you need to know is it's a tale about when he spent time with his mate Andy Nicholson, just after Andy Nicholson had left Um, Arctic Monkeys Um, But I can't do it justice without us just kind of playing it out So here it is in unedited and in full The greatest anecdote, not only that you'll hear on a podcast But I think you'll ever hear in your life, just in general So let's just play it out
7: Our man and Andy's relationship were intense Like all our brothers And um, to see him go to that high an experience that then to come for it all to be like swept away would we just I mean said I've got an amazing story actually an amazing story about the week that he left the band um so he came to live with me in Manchester for a week because press were after him and they were all kicking off and essentially he just locked himself in my room in Manchester uh, which I can't play before, And so we're just like playing pro-evo, we are cheating in my uh, bedroom in Manchester. Um, and we, we were, it were like, soul touching. So about, say he left on Monday, on like Thursday we were in my bedroom in Manchester and it come on the radio that, let me backtrack here, cause this story's been, it's great. While I were at uni in Manchester, I took a job at the Lowry Theatre, uh, basically behind bar, and the week before Andy leaves, the manager calls us in and tells us that we're going to have to start doing table service with trays, (laughs) and wear wear Okay. so I'm having none of it, I'm not serving fucking pints of Boddingtons to Peter Barlow, mate, in (laughs) in that's just not happening so he's like Chris coming off him. so he says to me um, what's crack I, says, I, I didn't fucking sign up for that he says, I'll, I'll, I'll pour drinks and I'll be at the bar and have a chat but I'm not the way am I serving drinks with a pinny around me so there's so a negotiating thing You let me and this other man kid uh, work under the Cellar at Lowry Theatre right um, just basically his job work to go down and sh- sh- like sh- loads of ale around and get to the right place and just put crates on you know so one day he comes down obviously we partaked in a, like a couple of crates went missing and we had an hiding place so we used to like <laughs> drinking that downstairs his founders like eating ice no, we, no, we, t- we took some ice cream out of the fridge and we're eating it out of the freezers and uh, essentially we both got sacked on spot it was like one of them zero hour things, who so was like, you know, don't turn up again. Mm. So I, so then I'm, then this thing kicks off. with end he comes to stay in Manchester week after. So I'm like, well, I really got a job, mate. Like, and I'm human is a bit quiet, so we were just like out in my flat really. It comes on radio that week that Noel Gallagher's doing a secret gig at the Lowry Theatre for XFM.
0: I remember this. Yeah, I feel like I might have been at that. I don't know. I think I was. I, remember, like in the, I think I in was at that country, gig actually. Well, like an acoustic tour, so I'm like Andy, let's let's go to
7: this gig. He's like, Andy had this number for Noel because they played with him in Canada, but he was like, he looked like a foreign number. We weren't going to work this, so Andy's like, I'll send a text to him, but I don't think he's like he's going to receive it. Lo and behold, we didn't wouldn't he hear anything. But the gig's like tonight, so it'd be with competition winners. So we're like, he'd not been out of house, so I basically took him out and got him like mortally drunk and uh, he's, like, completely come out of his shell for the first time, so I've had this amazing idea in toilet that I know all the codes to lift in Lowry Theatre, so I'm like, let's just rock up. I can get us into dressing room, cos I used to, cos I've just, I've been working there. <laughs> if Andy was sober, he'd never agree to this, but I'm like, come on, so he jumps in a taxi, gets down to uh, Lowry, and a few of the staff are like, oh, Chris is here, he must be going to gig, Lordy-blah. and I'm, they're all, like, fussing over Andy. So Andy sees this guy from, like, one of the was promoting. He's like, yeah, I sort your art. Meanwhile, I'm in lift, Like, I've, I'm coding this number into Lyft. Because we're in bar area. End, ends up me and Andy's in this lift, and I've got us, bang, smack into Noel Gallagher's dressing room. We're not invited and mm. out here. We ain't got a ticket out. Worst thing that could have happened, there's no one in the dressing room at all. Not a single soul. But there's, like, this buffet laid out and, like, all mm. these drinks. And I'm like shit, he's not here, no one's here, so he's like, what, what are we doing now, sagging around, and I'm like, yeah, so we're like, basically sat in the old guy, like his dressing room, like, waiting for him, just pissed out, just cracked up in a bottle and that, just like, what, he's going to fucking laugh, I thinking, is he going to laugh his eye? Next thing, he comes round corner, straight away, he's like, Andy, man, he knew exactly what had gone on, so he's getting Andy, a, like, a massive hug, and he's, Andy introduces me, and I'm like, re- it's the first time I'd ever met him, so I'm like, properly like, fan-bodied, like, in awe of him. So we're trying to play it very cool. So Andy's like, uh, have you got tickets, sir? Uh, who's got you in line? He's like, oh, no, uh, Chris has got us down here. We he got sacked from here, like, so he's <laughs> Like, you cheeky bastards. Oh, you just fucking walked in? He's like, yes, yeah, so he loves it. So he's getting us these, like, access all areas, like, big daddy passes. Uh, dedicates talk tonight to Andy during a gig so Andy's like in tears so we've gone back downstairs like, he's told us to come back downstairs so now we're invited we've got a pass on it it's all caution huh? so we've gone in and like all like Noel's aunties and like and cousins are in this room and that Noel's like just really cool with saying like so Andy says to him do you recognise my mate's face and I'm, he says no never seen him in my life he's like you do you know him he's like never seen him in my life mate trust me like, he's Kid off out of album, so Noel's like fucking loving it. And I'm like, loving him. So it's just like this big love off between me and him. He says, Come in the next room, uh, I, I someone's gonna love to meet you. Come in the next room. So he's like t- making like meeting all his live family and that and I goes in the next room and Peter Case sat there with his missus. So I'm like, Oh my god, what's going on? Yeah. So I start with Noel, Peter Kay, uh, in this private room. Next thing, I swear to him, the guy who'd sacked me walks in. We all this like memorabilia that he obviously wants to get signed for his kids and that. Looks at me, his face goes bright. What are you doing in here? What are you doing in here? <laughs> so, like fucking, oh god, it's terrible, really. Noel's gone, hold on a minute, mate. He's like, yes, what, what's crack here? I says, So I says you know I
0: told you that story about me getting sacked with nicking ice cream? He sacked me. <laughs> so it's all gone right weird. Well, like, I felt great right back, obviously the manager's like wants to world to swallow him up now. He's like, uh, Chris, Chris, um, it's all water under bridge, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. He's like, Can I get you any drinks, though? So Noel's like, Oh yeah, we'll love- yeah I says, Yeah, go on, I'll have some
7: drinks. Maybe a man I've been sacked for nicking them we're what can I get you? I says, just, I'll have a bottle of lager mate. No one shouts up. I felt no one shouts up. By the way, get us four tubs of ice cream and all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm fucking hiding his pants down.
0: So I don't know about you, Sarah, but I mean, I literally genuinely laugh every time I hear the punchline to that story about can you go and can
1: oh you go well, and yeah and, ice and not not just laugh but like belly laugh <laughs> it's the way he tells it as well it's not just the story it's the way he tells it he's he's clearly like you said done it many times
0: so yeah thanks a lot for that one uh chris and i guess yeah listeners uh forgive us when I mean, that was the, to- the total self-indulgence in our final episode to just play back all of our favorite clips but we hope you uh got as much out of it as as we did and if you enjoyed what you heard obviously you can you can go back and listen to all those interviews in full in the archive demo takes might be finishing but we're not pulling it from the airwaves just yet so uh, yeah do go back and listen
1: yes absolutely go back and listen to them and you should um but i guess the question that the listening millions are asking rick is what happens next for us
0: Yeah, I mean, when Demo Takes finishes, we we don't kind of disappear. You know, we do have like a life outside podcast land. We still, we didn't talk about this on the show deliberately for quite a number of reasons. But we still work, we've always worked together while the show's been running. We still work together now. So we're still going to see each other, you know, IRL. And I guess, yeah, as you mentioned at the top of the episode, you know, our lives have moved on from kind of the noughties nostalgia. And for me, I'm looking at other podcast projects at the moment. I've got one I'm kind of working on around content marketing, which is my day job. I think that is the new rock and roll or it's been the new rock and roll for kind of about um, 10 years. And I know, Sarah, you've been training to do something totally different.
1: So yes, totally, totally different. Uh, Another one of my passions, which is fitness. So I've just qualified to be a fitness instructor and then my plan is to become a spin instructor at some point this year which is basically to merge my two passions which is music and spinning
0: so yeah that, I think that's a really interesting idea it's one of those that doesn't surprise me having known you four years because you've run marathons you've always had that fitness kind of interest you've always been into your dance music I guess I'm intrigued as to what, what sort of dance music are you going to be using for those spin classes which is essentially my way of asking you like what are you actually listening to musically at the moment
1: yeah yeah so i've just started a new uh spotify playlist actually called spinning with sarah because that's kind of the the, the kind of the, what the theme's going to be um and there's two songs i want to pick out and talk to you about so one's an old one and one's a new one First one is uh, by an artist called Storm Queen. So it's a guy called Morgan Geist um, and he's an American producer from New Jersey. And his most famous song was Look Right Through. But there's a song called It Goes On, which resurfaced a couple of kind of a couple of weeks ago after about 10 years of not hearing it on my phone. I don't know, just must have come up come back up again and I was commuting back into the office on a train and it was a really sunny day and I just kind of got all these goosebumps and it just you know just these sorts of songs just kind of do something to me like my mentally it's it's absolutely amazing and just imagine myself on a spin bike losing my shit to it um and then the other one is uh, by a new female amazing amazing DJ producer called LPGOB um, and the song is called Say a Little Prayer. And it's, you know, she's piano house, funky house. Um, and on this track, it's incredible vocals by a woman called Amazonian Rockstar. And at the, at the beginning, it's, you know, her vocal sound a little bit similar to, to Yeba, who I've talked about before, another female artist. Um, she's done a lot of work with Mark Ronson. But those are just two songs that I've picked out um, that, that I'm listening to at the moment and will definitely feature in my kind of Spinning with Sarah soundtrack. But that's that's me. How about you Rick? I know we haven't we've gone we've gone how many minutes without you talking about anything to do with what you've been listening to which is rare isn't it?
0: I know yeah because as I said I mean we're done with Naughty's nostalgia podcasting but I've I'm certainly not done with music and I'm certainly not done with indie because that is you know kind of my my heartland. And I guess the two things I've listened to the most over the last year. I mean first one this won't surprise you but Beach House put out their, their latest album Once Twice Melody an 18 track uh four part they put it out in kind of four parts um it's like a vague kind of fairy tale story i haven't worked out what the story is yet but it's i mean it's 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 the typical kind of beach house template you know they haven't gone off and done something like completely new but i'd say probably the best album they they've ever done uh there's one track on it called modern love stories that i can't stop listening to because it it kind of almost sounds to me like that bit where you're pissed on the train home from a night out and everything's a bit kind of woozy. Uh, They've almost kind of encapsulated what that feeling feels like in music. Sounds a bit purple, a bit black, a bit of kind of a purple and black sort of swirl. I see music in colors a lot of the time as well. I think there's a word for that, synesthesia, I think it is. That's utterly brilliant. So if you haven't heard that, go and listen to that. And the other one that I've listened to a lot that quite surprised me, I think it surprised other people is Wolf Alice and their latest album Blue Weekend? Oh um, my
1: god, Wolf Alice! Oh, they're just—I inc- can't believe I haven't mentioned Wolf Alice. They are the best band for me since the nineties.
0: Well, I mean that—that's—that's that's a hell of a claim. I think it's a brilliant, brilliant album. I think the reason I'd say people would be surprised I'm into it is, for me, it's very mainstream rock. It's very highly produced, but I think there's enough kind of shoegaze grunge in there, and also just brilliant songwriting such a diverse album you know everything from like delicious things which is like almost like this hollywood epic of a tune to quite kind of grungy punky sort of stuff and um yeah one of those bands that i've long been aware of and i think when i when i heard material from the first couple of albums i just didn't really get it's just i don't think the songwriting was anywhere near as good but have gone up kind of several several levels and i'm trying to i'm trying to see them this summer if i can you know i know they're doing festival dates and uh that sort of thing. But yeah, they, they could be like a band of a generation. Here's the thing, maybe in 10 years' time I'll look back on this, whatever we're going to call this scene, and do a podcast then where I interview Wolf Alice about what it, what this era was like in 10 years' time. But, oh, you know. do you know
1: what? That would be cool. I'm gutted. I was I wanted to go and see them. They were played recently um, in Hammersmith and I just couldn't get Couldn't get there on those dates. But, I, you know, let's go together because I really want to see them as well.
0: Uh, Like a demo tapes closing party uh, at Alice. We'll invite (laughs) all the listeners down um, as well. Because, yeah, I I guess this probably is the place to sort of um, to close down the episode, close down the series. And obviously we can't do that without saying some uh, big thank you. So I've basically given you a long list of people to say thank you to. And when you run out of breath, I'll jump in <laughs> and finish the list. Let's
1: see how let's see how this goes. So in chronological order, <laughs> thanks to James Allen from Glas Vegas, Sam Potter of Late of the Pier, one of my, my first interview actually, uh, journalist Anthony Thornton, Blair's Dave Roundtree, Scott Bouda French and Sam Fatty Hemingway from The Big Rap Cookbook. John McClure of Reverend and the Makers, The Twangs, Phil Etheridge, journalist and musician John Robb, Chris McClure, Baby Shambles drummer Adam Feecek, the lads from the Paddingtons, go on there, you carry on.
0: The Young Knives, Laura Jean Marsh, Tom from Black Wire, Churin Breaks, The R.E.L.S., one of my favourite bands, uh, The Holloway's Bryn Fowler, Luke from the Kooks and his wife Ellie. Uh, the Long Blondes, Dorian Cox, Theoretical Girl, Amy Sharp, Reverend Guitarist, Ed Cousins, and finally Jack and Gary from Haven. And that, we're thanking all of them, obviously, for agreeing to come on and be interviewed. I mean, that's a hell of a long list, isn't it?
1: It is. And it's, it's funny going back. Just want to also say congratulations to Luke and Ellie, who have since had a baby.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. Called Demo Tapes, probably, right? <laughs> demo, <laughs> first de- name Demo, second lit- name Tapes. <laughs> Little Demo Kook, because it was always known as Luke Kook back in the days. Not-
1: Maybe middle names Demo Tapes. But
0: yeah, de- yeah. And I think for me, it's also fitting that Haven and the guys, Gary and Jack from Haven, end up being the very final interview we did on Demo Tapes. Because as I mentioned in the very first episode, I think, of the the podcast, that was the first review I ever did for NME, way before well, I think I was still in school. Um, and we never planned that. That would be the final kind of episode that we did. That's just how, how, how it's turned out. For me, that's quite serendipitous, if I can if I can say that word. I should also give a shout out to Jamie Fullerton, who was a bit of a stand-in demo tapes host at points and did the interview with The Young Knives on that episode. Uh, and he's got a podcast project of his own coming out soon. I'm not going to tell you what it is, or I don't want to spoil it for you, but uh, yeah, quite a big one. So look out on the socials uh, for that. And also, I guess we should say a thank you to all the band's Whose archive interviews we use because obviously they were done in my enemy days for print, and I think well, you know if you look into like media law and stuff like that, they technically probably could have sued us for putting those out. I think enemy probably could have sued me because I think maybe technically they own the copyright to that. So thank you to those big law teams, uh, whoever owns <laughs> enemy these days, and those bands for for not suing demo tapes. Although that being said there's there's nothing to sue you've just brought it
1: for the four now like we are
0: are in negative equity in demo tapes it costs us to put this out we don't make any money so (laughs) there wouldn't have been been, um a a lot to sue um so my final final thank you would be to you sarah obviously Uh. for, for making for making demo tapes a reality you know as you said it was that idea i had four years ago i came to you and said we've been having these conversations about how we're in the same places at the same times. And I think the listening millions should be hearing these. <laughs> so could we, oh. could we, could we give it a go at a podcast and it's, it's been, it's been amazing. It's been life changing to do it for me.
1: Yeah. It's been amazing. Oh, thanks Rick. And yeah, thanks to you too. Cause it's been, it's been great. And I don't, I don't think there's anyone else that I could have, you know, done this podcast with. Cause like I said, like we've just got that, I think it works when we talk and we, you know, and and people, I think, hopefully, have agreed by the fact that we've had so many listeners. Um, that it's you know what we've what we've had to say has been kind of really really fun and really interesting, and I've really enjoyed it. And I am sad that we're we're ending it, but you never know. Like we as as we said earlier, we still see each other every day. Um, we're still mates out, outside of demo tape. So who knows what what we could potentially do together in the future? But um, I think the final thanks, kind of from both of us, really should go to the listeners. We've clocked up over fifty thousand downloads. Which is just mad, you know, since we started recording in our pretty much our broom covered at work in our lunch hours. I remember I remember we used to I used to get really anxious about kind of getting the key to go to this little broom cupboard and, and and like make sure that no one knows what we're doing because we just want to do it on the i just want to do it on the slide i didn't want anyone to know what we were doing i don't know i was really kind of self, a bit self-conscious about it back in those days which I, which I probably wouldn't be now but anyway um you know we self-funded this shoddily promoted the show on social media <laughs> um, which really was very shoddy actually we could have done a lot better i think but um you know we're pretty happy with what we've done and we've really enjoyed reading your emails dms and tweets throughout the time as well so thank you
0: yeah and i guess probably on that point we should probably say if you want to keep up with what we're doing after demo tapes um you can check us out on twitter i don't know why you'd want to uh, but if you do my handle is rick underscore j underscore martin and sarah you are
1: i mean i'm on twitter a lot less than i'm on instagram these days uh but i am at i am sarah jane kemp on instagram so feel free to to get in touch if you want to keep chatting rubbish about
0: music. And yeah, I guess if this is somehow, somehow, the first episode of ours you've listened to, you've stumbled across it through our shoddy social media promotion. Uh then I mean you're frankly quite late to the party. In fact, it's like three o'clock the next day and we're tidying up. But um <laughs> if that's who you are and you want to want to go back and listen to any of the full episodes either the ones we've trailed or some of the ones that we didn't have time to play clips out from today then they're all there uh, in the archive including the two episodes of the inaudible arctic monkeys interview we're going to be keeping them up on audio boom they're going to stay on spotify and apple podcast for a period of time until the listens drop off and then we'll probably archive them somewhere like youtube um you know probably for my grandkids to listen to when they're on the hoverboards in you know 20 40 years kind of down the line
1: so you sure Rick, you 100% sure this isn't a Jay Z star retirement and uh, demo tapes all return next year?
0: I mean, as I mentioned in the episode notes of the pilot podcast we put out last week, we would reform for a seven figure fee, I think. But barring that, I think the world has moved on. We've moved on. Indie sleaze has ruined it for everyone, in my view. And that's my kind of stance. And yes, yeah, sadly, I'm sticking with it. Demo tapes is no more from here
1: it's so sad but i guess that all that's left to say is thanks for listening over the last three and a bit years you know we really hope you've enjoyed hitting rewind on the bands and scenes we've loved and we'll see you in the next podcast live
0: goodbye